Hi, everyone, and welcome to Driven by Cause. I want to take a quick second and give a shout out to our fantastic sponsors, Ariba and Microsoft, the industry's only all-in-one platform that has helped thousands of nonprofits raise more money for their cause. Make sure you visit Ariba.com to schedule a consultation with one of their fundraising experts. Let's get right into it. Jay, how are you doing today? I am doing great. I know we have another great guest, so let's get at it. Jay, I'm ready too. I'm excited to introduce this very special guest. She's an acclaimed author and nonprofit consultant who's been on a mission to help thousands of organizations transform philanthropy and make a difference for over three decades. She is the recipient of countless awards, including the AFP Global Fundraising Professional of the Year Award and the AFP Golden Gate Chapter Lifetime Achievement Award. She's also the recipient of the Gold Spike Award, Stanford University's highest honor for service. Her books are a staple in the industry, educating nonprofit organizations for decades. I'm proud to introduce Kay Sprinkle Grace. How are you doing today, Kay? I am so good. I am just delighted. I'm so happy to be with with both of you um, on this on this program. Well, thank you for being here today. It's really such a treat to have you join us. I, I'd love to just start off. Can you share with our listeners some information about yourself? Tell us who is Kay Sprinkle Grace. <laughs> And how did you get started in the nonprofit industry? Well, I got started as a volunteer because I had a totally different career in mind. You know, life is what happens to you, you know, as you are going forward and not always with a grand plan. Uh, my undergraduate major was journalism and my graduate degree is in education. And I had worked for a number of journalists based organizations, public media, as well as commercial media, and a magazine and a publisher. And I then decided to go into education. And my decision led to my being rift, which I didn't even know what that meant. It means reduction in force, when the, um, the, the enrollment in our school district declined by a staggering amount as the population aged and nobody moved. So I looked around, I thought, hmm, this isn't exactly what I had planned. And because I'd been volunteering, mostly at Stanford, uh, my friend said, well, have you ever thought of going into development work as a professional? And I said, uh, you mean get paid for what I've been giving away? And uh, they said, yes. And I've never looked back. I've never looked back. I My first job was with the Children's Health Council and they took a chance on me because most of them knew me. It was very closely affiliated with Stanford. Most of them knew me and I've just never looked back. I, have, I cannot believe the good fortune in my life to have happened into the most satisfying career I could possibly have. You happened into a great one. And uh, a lot of people are very happy that you did. Oh, uh, you've helped over a thousand different nonprofit organizations, Kate. What are some of the first steps you utilize when trying to identify the pain points that those nonprofits might be having? I love the use of the word pain because somebody once told me that the, the, the reason that people call a consultant is because they're feeling pain and want to get better. And I, there's a step that I take before I even accept, and that is whether or not the values of the organization align with the values that I have. 
because I find when I get into a situation of values dissonance that I can't continue with it. And so it's best to say I'm too busy or that just doesn't fit with my work schedule and not to go into any, you know, discussion about their values and mine not uh, syncing very well. But once I go past that, then I just, I listen, I listen. I've learned many years ago, the importance of open-ended questions the questions that allow people to really describe because you not only learn what it is that they are thinking about and want, but you also learn how they communicate Mm. and whether they are slow and articulate or whether they are fast, and then you can match that. And then it's a better conversation. So I ask questions. In fact, I just got off of a call just an hour ago with a brand new client And we are just now beginning after many conversations where I have just asked open-ended questions, you know, tell me about, tell me about the concerns you have about this, or what are your ideas about what you need to do? And then it comes together because what I do then is I mirror it back to them in a written proposal, and then we get started. So with this one, uh, we're, we're getting started this week. So you use the term you use the term consultant and you and you you agree with the, the term pain. So a lot of that pain uh, elimination is for ha- having a great strategic plan. Yes. So how do you go about helping the client figure out their tactics and their and, and other uh, parts of, of the other elements of a of a good strategic plan? What you, what, what's your process for doing that? Well, years and years ago, when I knew very little about strategic planning, I thought, you know, I think this people are making this more complicated than it really is. So I came up with a a process and there was a little booklet that BoardSource published about it years ago. It's called Tripod, Try for Three, POD, Program Organization Development. (laughs) Because in the nonprofit sector, everything we do is about program and services, the P, organization, which is board and staff, and then development, which is all community facing activity. So it's PR, marketing, fundraising, donor development, all of that. I have found that by dividing it into those three elements, and there is some crossover, and we acknowledge that in the planning, that from the beginning, we have a framework. And I start the process by asking people to, you know, it's the old uh, visioning exercise of imagine you're reading a headline about your organization or a computer-based information about your organization five years from now. You know, what, what would it say? And from there, we pull goals. Once we get consensus on the vision, we pull goals. And then from the goals, we pull the, the objectives or strategies. And it comes together pretty quickly. I believe in environmental scans. I believe that We should never plan by looking in the mirror, that we should always plan by looking through the window, seeing what's going on out in the community. But I tell my clients, before we start this process, I want you to be able to inform me about what the environment is that you're working in and what you see. Because everything we do, all nonprofits exist to solve a problem. And if you don't know what the problem is, then... It kind of makes it hard to do your work. Well, okay, you know, you, you have a lot of great ideas and I, I, I love these the strategies and, um, you know, the program organizations and services. I think you've gone beyond that and you wrote a book, Beyond Fundraising, and it discusses your philosophy and your strategy around fundraising and philanthropy. I'm sure some of our audiences have not had an opportunity to read that. Can you share some of your ideas with our audience about that? Sure. 
Um, that book, which I wrote oh, many years ago, 20 years ago, is still um, you know, in print and still apparently required for the CFRE, which I didn't realize until somebody told me that recently. Basically, the book is philosophical. It's, it's in three, three categories. It's the philosophical, the strategic, and the tactical. So you can know how to run a board meeting, but you can also think deeply about why am I doing this? And the, the philosophical principles are really anchored around one key idea. And that is that people give to you because you meet needs, not because you have needs. Mm. So get over it. It's not about you. It is about the needs you're meeting. It is about the window, not the mirror. And that principle then also goes into two other principles. One is that uh, all philanthropy is based in shared values. And so therefore the importance of the values premise, and I spend quite a, a full chapter on the values premise. And then the third one is, is the very simple fact that fundraising is not about money. It's about relationships based in shared values. And those three are really kind of the, the pivot uh, for all the chapters, although they're very practical. I mean, the planning chapter is just an A to Z, you know, how do you do a plan? And so I think the reason that it works is that it is that nice mix of philosophy, strategy, and tactic. I'm very proud of the book. One time, I mean, the publisher, you know, just came back and said, you got to revise this. And I went through and, you know, other than updating some examples, very little was changed. You know, we all talk about whether we're asking board members or donors or volunteers to really help the organizations ask for donations. And I, I know in many, many cases, you know, it's really uncomfortable to ask friends or other people that you know about (laughs) money. Could you share some ways that you have found effective in sharing this with, from a consulting perspective on how they should go about asking for donations? Yeah, it's, it's the most, I mean, I've worked around the world. I mean, I've worked in, on every continent except Antarctica. The one thing consistently is that people say that they don't like to ask because of the fear of rejection. And they all, they all nail it in whatever language uh, and however they express it. So the way I look at it is this. First of all, I was very inspired by my own mentor, Hank Rosso, who founded the Fundraising School, which is now... The, the centerpiece of the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy in terms of its public outreach. And Hank used to say, when you go into a meeting, take yourself off in kind of a Mr. Rogers gesture, you know, of taking off his coat instead of his sweater and let your cause walk in. So that's number one. Number two is that it's not about you and that if you are rejected, they're not rejecting you. You're not breaching a friendship. You're not in any way jeopardizing a relationship. They're just saying, you know, it's not my priority right now. And the beauty of that is that if you can say then, I understand that this is not a priority now, may we keep you informed. So maybe at some future point, it will be a priority. I have never had a potential donor tell me no. Because donors are kind of embarrassed when they have to say no. Right. You know, unless they are mean spirited, but most of our donors are not mean spirited. 
But I think what it, it really requires is this idea, it's your cause that goes in. I mean, your, your question is so apropos. I mean, I was doing a workshop for a humane society nearby here and a woman raised her hand and said, could I talk to you? And I said, sure. And she said, you know, I, I'd sooner have a hip replacement than ask for money. I said, well, you don't have to go to that drama. You know, there are ways that we can work around this short of the hip replacement. We always talk about two things, right? Donor acquisition and donor retention. And, you know, are there certain things that you have seen that have helped your clients provide a thank you, whether when they do get a donation, have you seen one? and, And I know there's many, but have you seen one thing that you would highlight for the audience? Yeah, and I'm going to call it, because I've searched for the right phrase, I'm going to call it a surprise email, but let me explain it. Uh, Years ago, I worked with a young man who had found development as his career, and he had a good background in marketing and messaging, and he brought that same energy and creativity to the nonprofit that he went to, and he implemented something I had never, ever thought of, and he was a very, he was very good at segmenting. You know, we've got to get away from email blast. First of all, let me just say that email is the best platform we have for stewardship. It costs nothing and it can make a lot of difference. But what he would do is he would segment people who were, he had a way of asking when people gave, he'd say, you know, what, which of our programs are the most interesting to you? And people would say, oh, I'd tick that box in that box. Then what he would do is he'd find a story or an accomplishment related to that program. And then out of the blue, not as part of a newsletter or anything else, you would get a, an email that really spoke to you. And I'll give you an example. I supported one part of their work, not the other two. The part that I supported was youth leadership development because leadership is really an issue with me. I would get these emails that said, just wanted to share with you that so-and-so who had been a member of a gang came to us for our leadership development program. We work with the parents. We worked with the family. We've been working with her. She was just elected to the student council at, and he named the high school. So it wasn't like a bogus thing because I could pick up the, high, the phone and call the high school. I thought, oh my gosh, wow, my money really is making a difference. And then later, when he moved to another organization, he implemented the same thing there. It was a different kind of a thing. And I have recommended that surprise email and the segmentation. But here's my bottom line on this. We now rely on computer-generated acknowledgments. They are acknowledgments. They are not thank yous. And I went into an organization the last week of the year uh, to fill in for some help that they needed. And I said, could I see your thank you letters? And they showed me acknowledgments. And I said, no, I said, I want your thank you letters. Well, these are the thank you letters. I said, no, they're not. So that's the other thing that we can do. For every gift we get, we need to make sure that it is a true thank you. Last week, I received a thank you letter for a gift I had made in December. To an organization that I have supported. Got an acknowledgement with the thank you was a card that said, we apologize for the lateness of this. We have been short-staffed. Please know that your gift means so much to us as do you as a donor. Okay. You got me a hello, you know? That's a thank you. Yeah. That's, well, that's a thank you. And 
we, and the other thing, I just read somewhere, I don't think it was the Chronicle of Philanthropy, it was somewhere, one of our publications, that the handwritten note yeah. is back in vogue. And I get handwritten. I'm on the board at Grace Cathedral. Their canon for development, she is fabulous. I wasn't here for Easter, but I sent money for the flowers. When I got back and went through all my mail, because I was away for three weeks, here was a handwritten note saying, you were with us in spirit. Thank you for your generous donation towards the flowers for Easter. I, I am so I am so glad to hear you say that. I, in, in my world, I deal with a lot of schools and boys and girls clubs and big yeah. brothers and so forth and one of the things that i love i love is that when some of the, when some schools and the boys and girls clubs have the kids that are benefiting handwrite notes after an event and send those out you know you're you, you go to the event you raise your paddle you spend a lot of money and you get a note from from a 10 year old whose life is going to benefit from that generosity there's nothing like getting that getting that card i'm so glad that you brought that I totally agree. I Years ago, I worked with the Santa Fe Chamber Music Festival, and they do a summer camp for kids that come in from many of the indigenous reservations, you know, the whole area. And their note cards are these are these thank you loads, notes. They, they choose some, and then they use them as note cards. Yeah. And this boy had written, had drawn a piano, and inside it said, thank you so much. When I came, I didn't know what a piano was, and now I can play one. What is it? And you know what? And that that is God, you that know. gets you that makes you the donor next time around. Oh, totally. That's an automatic. You're there totally. the that's so, that's how you keep me for my life. Yeah. Right. You know, there there are a lot of different ways to raise money. Uh, and obviously you're involved in, in quite a few of them. And a fairly common way is what we call the capital campaign. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so share with us a couple of ideas, if you will, on how to establish a really good capital campaign and one that's going to have long-term success, not a flash in the pan, but one that can be yeah. sustaining you know, over a long period of time. How would you go about doing that? There are enormous number of readiness checklists, and that's the first step. Find a readiness checklist because these are serious. They're online. You just you know, put in capital campaign readiness and you'll say, oh my gosh, <laughs> I guess we're not ready or I guess we are ready. There needs to be, I have, I'm wavering on feasibility studies. And let me tell you my wavering. If you are determined to do the campaign, and if you've already been socializing it with your major donors, and you pretty much feel that it's a green light situation, I don't think you need to waste the money on a feasibility study, if you're going to go ahead and do it anyway. Okay. However, if you have uncertainty, if the readiness checklist said, mm, maybe you better check this out. Then a feasibility study, which is obviously done by an objective outsider, and then that feasibility study will have one of three results. Do it, delay it, or forget it. Do it, you're clear to go. And what makes it clear to go? If you identify one third of the money you wish to raise in the campaign as a result of the sample in the survey. It's a multiplier that has never failed for me. <laughs> delay it means this is a list of things you need to do before you can take this on forget it. I've only had one like that. And it was uh, over in the Central Valley of California. And the community respect for the organization was non-existent. Oh. And I just said, you just, you need to like merge, collaborate, do something, because you don't have a bona fide trust basis in this community. And they didn't do it. And then it's to have 
And again, I waver on plans because I just finished doing 140, advising to a $140 million campaign. I only now do strategic consulting to campaigns. I don't like run a campaign. They didn't necessarily have a plan that was written out, but they had a plan <laughs> and it was, it was kind of there. It was in all of our consciousness. And the other thing is have an excellent volunteer team and know that volunteer teams shift during a long campaign. So with this big one, it shifted from a traditional campaign steering committee to at the end, it was called a working group and it was a working group. It was a, like the cleanup committee. So the volunteers, the, the plan, whether it's written or intuitive and then knowing the territory and we see them more and more all the time, yeah. And I've also detected uh, in in our conversation that you have no problem being blunt with organizations when they need it. Yeah, I I kind good. of I soften the edge. Blunt may be a little uh, a little harsh. We'll call, we'll call it direct. We'll call it. Direct. I'm, I'm direct. I'm direct. honest, and uh, and you want a consultant that's honest. Yeah. 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 You want a consultant who will tell you how it is. Well, you've written you've written a, a number of books, and one of the books you've written is the ultimate board members book. I think you yes. sold forty five thousand. Yeah, amazing, huh? Amazing number of copies. I'm I'm jealous. I, I wrote a book also about auctions. I don't think we got close to forty five. No, 45. it's it's an unusual number for a niche market book. Yeah, yeah, it's great. And so it, it is. It's it's just it's a short book. It takes about an hour. It takes about mm -hmm. an hour. So so to read. Why is board in, involvement so important to an organization? Well, I think the best way to think of it is if we look at our organizations as an hourglass and there's the organization at the top and there's the community at the bottom or vice versa, the board is in the middle. The board represents the organization, the board represents the community. And so to have a vibrant board, a board that is engaged and committed and knows how to be a board member mm -hmm. is effective both for the organization but also in terms of taking the community, taking the, the message of the organization out into the community. And so that little book, which doesn't have any chapter that's longer than three pages, but it touches on things like board meetings. And the title of that chapter is Board or Board. And I don't think I have to spell that out for the listeners. The legal side of being aware of it, and that's the shortest chapter in the book. It just said, says every state and country has its own legal uh, requirements for nonprofits, know them. Okay, staying, staying on that subject yeah. about boards, you know, you, you recently wrote another book called The Transform Your Board into a Fundraising uh -huh. Force. Right. I love that. Could you just explain that whole concept? Yeah, the, the board passion quotient is something that was derivative of a book that I wrote before, which was called The AAA Way to Fundraising Success, which is a model that I developed probably 15 years ago now. I published the book about 12 years ago. When I came to the realization that you would never find a board where 100% of the people like to ask for money, right? They'd line up for the root canal or the hip replacement before they would go ask for money. But what I found was that they were willing to help in other ways. So the, the AAA is ambassador, advocate, asker. And it's a self-identifying program 
you have a checklist of things you want to have done in each of those categories and people sign up. And the interesting thing is that when you sign up for something, you end up doing it rather than my saying, oh, David, I want you to do this. And Jay, I want you to do this. And you're thinking, ah, I don't want to do those things. And so you don't. Uh, you just you know stick the cards in your desk drawer and you leave them there until somebody calls you and says, how are your calls going? The thing that I found out, AAA has taken off. I mean, it's being used globally with boards, but some places it hasn't worked. And when I evaluated why it wasn't working, it was that the boards were not passionately engaged in the mission. Mm-hmm. So the PQ, the passion quotient has to do with the amount of focus and energy that an organization puts into continually connecting its board with the mission, vision, and values, the soft stuff, if you will. Our problem is that every board meeting is like a a tragic play from Shakespeare. It's the leaking roof. It is the declining revenue. It's the pandemic. It's the PPP. We're not sure we're going to get the money, blah, blah, blah. So what I highly recommend is that every, and I also say this in the ultimate board members book, every board meeting should have a mission moment where someone from the community who has benefited directly from your program comes in and says, wow, I don't know where we'd be if it weren't for you. And I learned this in my first job at Children's Health Council, uh, where they had people came in from the community talked about the impact of their learning disability program on that child. And I have used it for everything from hospices with grateful families coming in. Because when you walk out of a board meeting, you want to feel uplifted and you want to feel like you have a story to tell. Whether you tell it when you go home or go to work, I heard the most amazing story last night. And then you tell the story. That's what keeps the passion up. And when we don't do that, then everything else falls apart. Let's talk about the other side of the equation uh, here, and that's the volunteer base. Uh, so what, what are some tips on cultivating successful volunteers, recruiting them and, and keeping them with the same passion as the board members? Well, don't treat them like family. Don't take them for granted. That's the very first. We tend to take volunteers for granted. And, oh, yeah, well, we'll just get Alice to do it. You know, she always comes in. We need a stewardship program for our volunteers, just like we have a stewardship program for our donors. One of the cleverest, I used to do a a workshop on this. And one of the the cleverest things that was brought to me, I I learned so much from others, was the non-monetary ways to thank donors And so one organization which did a a big event every year where they had a lot of gifts from the community that then they, you know, they auctioned off, they'd ask the donors of those things like the weekend for two, you know, in at up in Napa or something like that. They say, would you mind doing two of those? Because we'd love to give one to a very special volunteer. So these non-monetary things, one organization I worked for, had a special parking place for the volunteer of the month. These little things, and of course the thank you notes, honoring people, that kind of thing. But basically it comes down to one word, stewardship. Do we take them for granted or do we really, really steward them and say how important you are? 
And do we remember, and this gets back to AAA, the volunteers who are ambassadors, who are the people who introduce you to people who end up giving, they need to be acknowledged. And one of the most powerful examples of this, I have a client here in San Francisco called Futures Without Violence. And we did a building renovation of a building, an historic building in the Presidio. And we were pretty stuck about our leadership gift. And one of the board members, herself, not of great capacity, said, I think I know. I think I know who would do this. Well, it worked like a dream. They went down, they visited the woman. She gave the gift. This was 2008 when people were kind of hanging on to their money. She gave four and a half million dollars so we could go forward with that part of it. When the building was dedicated, when that part of the building was dedicated, they honored the woman who had brought the donor to them, as well as honoring the woman nice. who made the gift. Right, nice. That is nice. the most superb example I can give you. Yeah. That's great. Wonderful. We, we've heard, and I don't know if everybody has, but we've heard the word transformational giving. I would love if you could share that and why this concept resonates today. The altar to that the other side is transactional. And the reason that we feel like Sisyphus and we just keep pushing that same rock up every year and we have a churn rate of losing our donors of like 47% nationally where we lose first time donors at that rate. And I'm going to draw this. I'm, I'm making a, for those of you who can't see me or only listening, I am drawing something that looks kind of like a bell curve or it looks, let's say that looks like a caterpillar moving forward. And up the left side is identify, qualify, develop a strategy, cultivate, solicit. And then down the back side is everything you do after you get a gift and you acknowledge, you recognize, and then you stuff them into the donor database. That's what you do. And there's a tick mark you could put in right after solicit, which is TGIO. Thank goodness it's over. We got the gift. The event was a success. And we're done. We are done with that donor. Well, in transformational giving, imagine an infinity loop. Imagine the same process. But then imagine that when that gift is made, you keep them in a relationship. You send them a surprise email. You invite them to to lectures or to meet people. You send them personal notes. What happens is that they end up getting into a relationship that gains momentum because that's what the infinity loop does, of course, and it it gains momentum. The reason I mentioned about the caterpillar is that there's another little um, way to remember this, that what feels to the caterpillar, like the end, like with the organization, oh, thank goodness it's over, to the butterfly is just the beginning. And if you think of the transformational infinity loop, a vertical line through the, the, the axis of the loop, it looks like a butterfly. But what we do when a person gives, they have transformed into, and I, used, I introduced the phrase in that first book of mine, Beyond Fundraising, of the donor investor. Mm. And you create investors who may not give to you every year, but you still steward them. You still invite them. You still send them information because they are committed and that transformation means that they 
are part of your vision and your future. And it could be they don't give for five years. And then all of a sudden you get a million dollar plan gift because you've kept in touch. My very first, my very first million dollar gift when I was brand new into fundraising was a woman who had a man who had not given on behalf of his wife for 10 years, wow. 10 years, but they kept sending him things. And his wife was blind and she used to, he used to walk with her around the grounds of this facility. And it was like 1.7 million by the time it all came in. Oh, wow. Donor retention. Donor retention. And it's transformational, transformational. Absolutely. That infinity loop, just keep it moving. Well, let's talk a little bit about how to get those donors into that infinity loop, onto that infinity loop. That has to do with, with, um, with a mission and marketing the mission and identifying people that are going to connect to that mission. So what are some strategies you could share on how to identifying the right people that are going to bond with that mission? And how do you market that? What are some strategies for nonprofits? Well, I think what comes before that is take a look at your messaging. Philanthropy is not about scarcity. It's about abundance. And I mean, we just talk scarcity. We just talk all the time about the needs that we have rather than the needs that we meet. And I think that is the worst approach relative to donors today. And I always say to people, okay, who raises the most money in, our, in the United States? Oh, well, you know, Stanford and Harvard and, you know, all that. And I said, and do they come from scarcity? No, yeah. no. I mean, they've got a, a huge endowment. And I say, then what do they come from? Oh, and then suddenly they see that yeah, it's okay. all about investment. And yeah. it's about investing in these students who are going to change the world and how they've changed the world already. And you want to be part of success. Yes. So the very first thing that you have to do is take an honest look at your messaging. What are you saying? Are you saying we're, we're a needy organization or are you saying we're an organization that's meeting needs? The biggest problem we have is that our mission statements are frankly, absurdly boring. We somehow, somebody told us that it had to be 25 words or less and fit on the back of a, of a card. And that's fine for a corporation, but we deal in emotions, not products. Uh, whether it's cancer or kids or whatever it is, there's an emotional fiber that is present. And our messaging tends to be very, very dry because we talk about what we do. And when people tell me what they do, I say, why? And they say, what? Why? What, what do you mean, why? And I say, well, but why do you do it? Well, because, you know, people have needs. Why? You know, and just drill down and down and down. Years ago, I was teaching a class for the fundraising school, and the first exercise we do is a mission statement that finishes the sentence, we exist because. And of course, people were still writing, we exist because to provide. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, this is just bad grammar. And there was a woman there whose organization dealt only with hands, and it was in a, in a logging community and had extended its, its work beyond the, the, the logging industry as it, as it grew. And her mission was completely boring and all about what they did. And I just kept saying, why, why, why? And finally she said, 
like, like stop. And I said, so write me a mission statement that if I didn't, if I'd never had anything worse than a hangnail, I would read what you do for hands and I'd say, oh my gosh, this is something that's really important. And this is what she wrote. Finishing the idea we exist because. Next to the human face, hands are our most expressive feature. We talk with them, we work with them, we play with them, we comfort and love with them. An injury to the hand affects people professionally and personally. At Vector Health Programs, we give people back the use of their hands. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's wow. pretty strong messaging, Kay. <laughs> and strong messaging. <laughs> I mean, you talk about strong messaging, and I, I, I think it is uh, essential that you, you share that. And um, outside of the messaging, which I also think is a high priority, and, and people do miss those things, with your vast experience and your professional way of consulting and the advice that you've given thousands out there, you've, ha you've had to come across some more frequently things as we all seen certain frequent things across working with the nonprofits. Are there any common mistakes that you see nonprofits making and possibly share with the audience what they could do differently to, to avoid those mistakes that seem to be more common than not? I think there is a tendency to believe, particularly in, in the, the, where we are right now, where we may have as many as nine decades in our databases, that one size fits all. Mm -hmm. And we need to be very astute. A core message, yes, but how you deliver the message. And we can't practice ageism. We can't say that people in their 70s, you know, don't want email. That's not true. You know, I mean, there are some of the people in their 90s use e email, but there are also people in their 40s that really resent having the platform that is pushed at them because of where they are. So looking at that, I think it has to do with we're not using the tools. You know, I mean, how many decades now have we been using technology? And yet it's kind of like the human brain. Most of us are only using like the 5% of the technology. And I guess what I'm saying is about the segmentation. How do we use it interactively? How do we reach out to our donors? I think that we focus more on acquisition than retention. And yet when we look at how our fundraising cost numbers go up, we know that it costs about $1.30 to acquire $1. By the time you get them to be major donors, it's about eight cents on the dollar. So where would you put your emphasis? The third thing has to do not so much with development professionals, but it is boards and management continuing to under-resource donor development and to be looking at, you know, you want to do a cultivation event, a donor recognition event. And I had a CFO say to me, well, where's the offsetting revenue? Well, there is none that I can tell you is going to come in that night. It's long term. Well, then she said, I'll just have to put it under travel and entertainment. Oh, so we need, and that brings me to the last point on this one. My perception over the decades I've been involved is that development professionals need to do more positive marketing of the development function within the organization. They need to convey the impact of their work within the organization, as well as to their donors. 
And only then I think will we be adequately resourced because we're always the last one in and the first to go when the, the tough budgets hit. All right, we're almost towards the end of our program. And mm -hmm. I, we've talked a lot about what you've done and uh, amazing, I've learned a lot. I know David probably feels the same way I do. We've learned so much uh, from just listening to you. Tell us a little bit about where the future is. Here's your chance to tell the world here, the people at least feel watching, what you think the future of philanthropy is going to be. Well, I think we're going to see a continued focus on access to philanthropy. In other words, opening philanthropy to new markets, mm -hmm. uh, to, to people of color and who are rising in, in on our, thank goodness, finally getting places on our boards. I think we're going to see that, but I also feel that there's another aspect to diversity and that is age. I think that we need to get a lot smarter about engaging younger people. And I'm gonna be doing a, a webinar next week uh, for Resource Alliance in the UK, but you know, from obviously from San Francisco uh, with a woman that I've been working with. Um, she and a, she, Sharna Goldsecker and a colleague, a longtime colleague of mine, Michael Moody, have written like the book on, on millennial and, and Gen X and Gen Z giving, and it's called Generation Impact. Mm -hmm. And what she and I are going to be looking at is multi-generational approaches to philanthropy going forward in the future. And I think that's where it is because we're seeing huge holes in our, particularly with Gen Xs, because Gen Xers have been kind of a quiet, it's the small generation between the millennials and the baby boomers. And these are the people who are now in their 50s who you know, need to be leading on our boards and they're not stepping up, we're not reaching them. And how do we better understand the energy and the vision of the, and the impatience of the younger generation? And you know, I always say that the good news is that in nonprofits, our boards operate by consensus. The bad news in nonprofits is that our boards operate by consensus and it can take meeting after meeting. And I have had younger board members saying, you know, if my corporation took this long to make a decision, the other guy would have the product in the market first. And so we need to begin adjusting. And that's really what I'm focused on for, for the next year or so is how do we embrace these nine decades? Yeah. How do we get them involved? And what can we offer them? What do we offer them? I still maintain that we have too many nonprofits. And I hate to say that to an audience comprised of nonprofits, but anywhere you can collaborate, partner, merge. That's an ugly word, but oh my gosh, I did a merger last summer during the pandemic. That organization has just taken off in this new form. And the community is loving it and it's working. So those are the issues I think are, are pretty big. So you have done so many impressive things in your career. Uh, you've consulted thousands. You've been recognized by all sorts of awards, um, which is really nice to be recognized by your peers. Um, you know, cause there's a lot of people out there that are doing wonderful things. You've accelerated so many things. What has been your proudest moment? I think that my proudest moment has to be my role in helping to create the program we've been doing in Central and Eastern Europe uh, for the last eight years, 
we we've done six workshops and we were planning for two years. It's called Leaders of Tomorrow. And I can tell you, and I get pretty choked up about it, but we have had more than 100 um, civil society leaders come through the program. And many of them are right now truly on the front lines with the refugee work. Uh, a woman that I mentored uh, runs a children's uh, organization in Romania. And I mean, she's right up there by the border and they are welcoming these children that are crossing the border, you know, without parents. I mean, because the parents stay behind or just with the mom. And I, it came about because we were doing a workshop in Prague. They use a format called open space. So on the second day of the conference, instead of signing up for classes, the students can say, and it was limited to 100, and the participants can say, this is what I'd like to talk about. And so ironically, it was the young woman from uh, Ukraine that I'd been working with, Svetlana. And she said, would you lead a session on leadership? And how it works is that the person who organizes it uh, has to give the facilitator a question. So the question was, and these are all, for the most part, post-Soviet countries. How do you learn to lead when there are no models? Oh, wow. And though when those who have tried to lead have been punished. Wow. Well, I never had a, anything so momentous kind of fall in my lap. And we had a great session. And at the end of the, of the conference, I met with the same people I was on with at eight o'clock this morning. And I said, we need a leadership program. Hmm. And we put it together over two years. And as I say, we've done now six sessions over a hundred from 19 countries, including Russia, Ukraine, Belarus. I have to say that in terms of my legacy, I feel that that will be the most significant thing. Thank you. That's awesome. We, uh, we've learned a lot about your work. We've learned a lot about your philosophy and your vision and that sort of thing. Tell our listeners something about you that would surprise them? What, would, what, is, what is something about you that we would all be surprised to learn? That I spent a lot of the pandemic writing a 350-page manuscript, and that doesn't count the pages that are on the, you know, ended up on the cutting room floor. Uh, I finally wrote a it's, a, it's a novel, memoir, it's a, it's a blended genre, and it's the story of my father in World War II. It's a very powerful, it's a powerful love story. And I researched it. I can tell you exactly what Hereford looked like in 1943 because I researched, anyway. So most people don't know that um, because they think of me writing these other kinds of books. And I, now I have to do some rewriting because uh, my readers gave me great suggestions, but so that's kind of a surprise thing. And when and it's, it's when called I, My Father's War, the results of his experience in World War II were kind of like a war that he fought the rest of his life um, in terms of duty versus desire. Well, we'll look forward to it. We'll look forward to it for sure. So we've asked you a lot of great questions. You've shared so many wonderful answers with the audience. We always like to finish our show by asking, what is something that Jay and I did not ask you that you wish we did? It, it surprised me that you didn't because so many people ask it, but I don't necessarily wish you did. It's like, <laughs> uh, well, how many books have you written? <laughs> <laughs> and the answer is seven. 
professional books. So there you go. But I, for some reason, it's always a question I get. And but I didn't want you to ask it. Okay. Thank you for your time today. Uh, we'll be right back after this message. Okay. We are a team that has had an enduring influence on the nonprofit industry for more than three decades. We pride ourselves on developing and delivering technology with a purpose, software born of a genuine understanding and passion for cause. We are relentlessly dedicated to our clients' success. We are with our clients for good. We are Ariva, tech with purpose, driven by cause. Ariva is the trusted advisor and market leader of fundraising, donor relationship management, and auction software and services. Exceed further, our evolutionary all-in-one digital fundraising and donor relationship management software is helping nonprofits worldwide further their mission, transform fundraising, and cultivate relationships with donors and constituents. Our Maestro Auction virtual, live, and silent auction software, text-to-bid, virtual and mobile bidding software, and text-to-fund, text-based donation software are helping nonprofits raise billions of dollars through thousands of virtual fundraising events, charity auctions, and galas. Visit Ariva.com and reach out today and see how Ariva can help your nonprofit organization go further. Welcome back to Driven by Cause. Jay, why don't you tell the audience what time it is? Well, David, it's time for Ask the Maestro. This is something we do uh, every every one of our podcasts. We give the audience a chance to ask us a, a question, and uh, we'll do our best to, to answer it. And, uh, you know, this happens to have come from Ed. And Ed asks, what is the optimum retention rate organizations should establish as a goal? And you know what? Before you and I try and answer that, David, I think we ought to give that to Kay because I think this is in her wheelhouse. I, I agree with that, Jay. All right, guys, I'll take it on. Um, I'm I, Ed, I think you were meaning retention of donors. And I think that what I'm, I'm working with an organization right now that thrilled us all last year by ramping up the stewardship, ramping up the engagement, and of course, having a break in the pandemic so they could do an annual gathering. They had like 97% renewal of their high-end donors. I'm working, I'm on the board of an orchestra here in San Francisco, and we get, really, we get like 80% uh, renewal of our upper-end donors. So in looking at retention rates, you have to understand that you need to focus in two places. One is at the very top. You know, it's, it's, it's just important. Some people are created more equal than others because they give more money. They need a lot of attention. But the retention rate that you would aspire to, and you, you want it to be incremental and based on, on good practices, has to be focused on those first-year donors. And we've done some really interesting thing with first year donors. One of my biggest projects in my whole career was called the Major Giving Initiative for the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And it was 110 public television stations. But what was interesting was that we looked also at membership because obviously membership is the feeder for larger gifts. And in the year that they followed up the members, the new member with a phone call thanking them, and when they called them a month before their renewal was up, they increased their renewal by, um, I forget what percentage. 
So I have applied that then to annual giving as well with my clients. Give that person a call right after the gift comes in. And then also just before you're going to send out a renewal. It's the touching. We tend to touch people at the top end. We ignore them. But retention is a long, it's at Stanford, we used to call it from point of entry to point of exit, from the first gift to the planned gift. The touches along the way are the most important thing. So I would say that if your first-time donors are turning over at the national average of 47%, you know, start setting a goal that you're going to really reduce that with the understanding that those first-time gifts are often impulsive. And then what you want them to do is become habitual. And then the third level is you want those gifts to be thoughtful. And then the highest level is you want those gifts to be caring. And that highest level is the major gift or the planned gift. Uh, and that's so it's impulsive, habitual, thoughtful, and caring. And those are from Hank Rosso, uh, founder of the fundraising school. That's a great answer, Kay. I, I mean, it, it, I think it resonates with all of us and uh, we, we've all been part of that. The next question comes from Elena and she asks, which is pretty interesting to follow up on your, your answer, but we have the problem in the past that stewardship was very poor. Donors were never thanked, period. We are trying, in capital letters, to recover from this now. Do you have any tips for getting these donors back? I think the tip is the card that I got with my thank you letter from this dance company. Be authentic. Say, you know what? We haven't done a very good job. And yeah. yet you're really important to us. And you know we commit to, to being better at this and we hope you'll stick with us. And I've found that people, I think a leadership quality that we too often ignore is vulnerability. And it is very, very, when it's authentic, it yeah. is one of the most powerful. If you say, you know what, we really haven't done well by you. And yet you're so important to us. And I, I once worked with an organization that um, had a very, a, a, actually a corrupt person in charge who was called on it and fired and actually prosecuted. But the person who took over, he had, this guy had raised money for a building and then spent the money on something else. She went out to every single one of those building donors and sat with them. And she had nothing to do with it. She was brand new. And she just, you know, apologized. And all but one said, you know, we'll give you a gift now for the building. And the other one, and the last one wanted the money back. But yeah. I think it would have been much worse if she had not just said, we, we, did, we didn't do the right thing. Yeah, Kay, I, I'd like to actually add to that because I think that is the beginning. There's some great TED Talks that I've actually recently watched from Renee Brown about vulnerability. Yes, and Renee Brown and, is very good with that. Yeah, yes. and she's uh, been very inspirational and I think she's done some wonderful things on this. But once you apologize, and I don't know if that's just vulnerability, uh, you know, I mean, it, we, we should be able to say, and apologize always, right? I mean, it was a, we're, we're a different era and we need to do that. I think what goes on after the apology is equally as important. Oh, yes. The apology <laughs> is what gets us in the door, right? right. Now, if 90% of people accept it, it's wonderful. And if 10% don't, it's okay. But then it's the actions that you take afterwards. Right. And you have to put that plan in place. And I've seen some 
wonderful organizations do just that where, hey, we haven't reached out, we apologize. And then every 90 days, they either send a thank you, they send an invitation, totally. they, which, which, and not asking for money, yeah. but engaging them, inviting them to an event. I, I've seen this um, through and through. And when you do that, not only do you accept that apology, they can now re-engage you yeah. as a volunteer, a donor. That's right. Um, and, yep. and it really does. And, and then they really feel like they they are involved. So mm -hmm. you'll have an opportunity as an organization to give out that apology, but you really have to execute and follow you through really do. on that as yeah. action. So yeah. I, I couldn't agree. I couldn't be more supportive of that. I mean, if you if you don't live your truth, then what's the point? Well, well, I am I am sad to say that this guess. <laughs> is done for the day. This is uh, all the time we have for today. It has been wonderful, Kate. Thank you so much. For those of you that are watching the podcast, please submit your questions for Ask the Maestro to us. Uh, we'd love to answer your questions uh, in, a, in, in a future session, and we'd love to just, just hear from you. So there you go. Yeah, we sure do, Jay. And, and thank you for telling that. And Kay, it was a pleasure having you with us today. Honestly, it was such a treat. I mean, you're a phenomenal human being. You're doing great for the industry as a whole. You know, please don't stop. And I want to hear that in the next few years, you wrote another seven books. But, you know, while you're at it, let's just make sure we go ahead and, and hit the subscribe button, uh, not to miss out on the next Driven by Cause. I also want to just give a thank you again to our amazing sponsors, Arriva and MeisterSoft. Thank you all for a fantastic you know, meeting and to our listeners, we, we couldn't do this without you. Uh, and thank you for joining us next time for Driven by Cause. Make it a great day.